Robot dogs are taking over the military. Now, how do you taking not over pay attention the military. to that? Taking over the military. Yeah, this is in task and purpose. It's actually a really interesting article. It's a good one to uh, read if you haven't seen it. Task and purpose. Robot dogs are taking over the military. This is AI for Leaders by AI Leaders. Practical, to-the-point content, helping you drive results with AI. Here's Chris and Frank. Hi, I'm Frank Strickland. Welcome to the AI for Leaders podcast. I'm Chris Whitlock. Chris, before we dive into this week's episode, let me share with our listeners some exciting news. We're going to be coming out with some episodes in the next month, uh, just a couple of them that I'll tease. There's an episode with a former legal advisor to NATO. He is an attorney, a judge advocate general attorney from the military by trade, and he's going to talk with us about AI in warfare from a legal perspective. We think that'll be very valuable content. Uh, and then we are going to have an episode on AI and remote work. Uh, this is the three-year anniversary in March of the COVID shutdown uh, that hit our nation. Uh, you and I have done some writing around co-located teams in knowledge work and creative knowledge work, and we're, we're going to do an episode uh, on that and its implications for leading AI teams. Great, great. Uh, but Chris, then uh, we also have some very exciting news um, about AI leaders that's going to be coming out at the end of the month. It's but so exciting. Yeah, so exciting. But let's jump into uh, this week's episode, Chris. There was another article that attracted our attention uh, about robotic dogs, uh, AI-enabled autonomous dogs. And so, Chris, uh, let's jump into that topic by first uh, introducing that article. I love and I hate this headline. So it's in task and purpose. It was on March the 1st, and you got to love it in part. Robot dogs are taking over the military. Now, how do you taking not over pay attention the military. to that? Taking over the military. Yeah, this is in task and purpose. It's actually a really interesting article. It's a good one to uh, read if you haven't seen it. Task and purpose. Robot dogs are taking over the military. Um, it gives an interesting overview to me, Frank, about what's going on in an area of autonomy. And we know for defense innovation and the third offset, autonomy is really important and it manifests itself in different ways. One of the ways is with a physical apparatus, in this instance, a dog, uh, that can be AI enabled uh, and a number of other uh, capabilities that, that can be associated uh, with it. Where, where I thought the article was interesting is I love the headline. I hate the headline. Robot dogs are taking over the military. But when you get into the article, uh, it actually turns out not so much. Uh, <laughs> while robot dogs appear to be gaining ground across the U.S. armed forces, comma, the Army and the Marine Corps are noticeably absent from this ever-growing dog pile. So, and I so think, wait, let's just, let's put a sharp point on this. So in the headline, robotic dogs are taking over. Taking in over. This, in this paragraph, there are two caveats. They appear to be taking over, or no, no, they appear to be making advances. Making advances is different than taking over. 
and then the second gaining ground. Is, yeah. yeah, gaining ground. No play in the Marine Corps Army, uh, who, oh, by the way, are, are the biggest users of the working dog program that we'll talk about in just a second. So, Chris, just a simple analytic here, you know, descriptive stats can be very helpful uh, at times, even though mathematically, statistically, they're pretty straightforward. What paragraph did you just, what number paragraph did you just read from? In Actually article? looked it up earlier. It was so interesting to me. 23 paragraphs in, uh, we get that fairly important uh, caveat. So uh, again, this is a great article. You ought to check it out. Seriously, yeah. it's worthwhile to read on autonomous systems. But um, I think the the really useful facet of this is to explore how far can this go? What is the potential here? And there's some exciting potential, but there are some boundaries. And I think, Frank, it's it's one we can take some time on here and explore uh, to get some of the edges on the potential for AI-enabled autonomy. So, Chris, um, let's maybe start with giving our listeners some background on the military working dog program. Let me take a practical example, a particular case study, and then you can jump in with some broader context. Uh, so the military services have programs uh, under the heading of military working dogs or MWD, um, and it would not shock any of our listeners um, military working dogs were employed during the war in Iraq and also in the war in Afghanistan, Operation in Iraqi Freedom and Operation Enduring Freedom, respectively. Um, an Oxford University Press uh, research project uh, published in their medical journal uh, actually looked at the veterinary records for 92 dogs that uh, died during OIF and OEF, respectively. Um, I was actually surprised, Chris. Uh, I think most of our listeners, the blink reaction, uh, if you ask them, okay, dogs are serving in Iraq and Afghanistan, I can kind of get that. There are dogs that are trained to help soldiers and others on patrol. There are dogs that are trained to help sniff out IEDs, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Most probably think the deaths were associated uh, with uh, a blast, an IED explosion or a grenade or something like that. Some um, combat-related activity. Yeah. Uh, most were killed through combat-related activities. 72% died from combat wounds. Um, but of those, the majority of them uh, died from gunshot wounds not from blast. So 72% died of uh, combat wounds and the other 28% died of disease, uh, which again, if, if folks just kind of think about their history and kind of civil war deaths or other big war deaths, uh, diseases take a tremendous toll on human soldiers as well. But of those that died uh, of wounds, the majority of those, the leading cause, about 36%, um, was gunshot wounds. Uh, and then 20-some-odd percent uh, died from blast. And then there were several other areas, drowning, electrocution, hit by a vehicle, etc. But that gives our listeners a practical example. Military working dogs being deployed in combat to be with soldiers on patrol, 
uh, sometimes on a leash, sometimes off a leash, depending on how the dogs are trained, uh, sniff out explosive IEDs, et cetera. But Chris, uh, talk about the, the broader uh, military working dog program. Just add some texture around that. Yeah, I think the the one quick caveat is while that is there in a wartime setting, dogs are used for a wide variety of purposes all the time. And a lot of that has nothing to do with combat, won't ever have anything to do with combat necessarily. Um, the working dog program has been as many as 10 or 11,000 dogs at points in time. Uh, now it's in the small uh, thousands range. Um, there are a, about a dozen or so task areas that dogs are trained to address. Um, yeah, and they're dogs, they're living things. I was uh, remarking, reading one description uh, recently, and it was a, a young soldier who was describing his relationship with his dog. And he said, we've gotten to the point when I just look at her and she knows what she needs to do, <laughs> we've picked up on her. I've picked up on her little mannerisms when she's found something or when she's excited, she flicks her ear, she wags her tail. She's the best dog in the world. She's got my back and I've got hers. And I think the military working dog program, you know, you might understand at a level that way there is uh, a dog handler, there is a dog, the dog is trained in a specific task, maybe it's trained in two tasks, uh, and that can be like drug detection or explosive uh, detection and, and a range of others. Um, but their roles have changed over time and, and have expanded. Uh, I was talking with um, a long-term special forces officer or interacting with him uh, earlier, he runs the irregular warfare activity at the U.S. Military Institute. And he was sharing that in the late 90s in special forces, dogs were just really weren't in his consciousness that much. Mm -hmm. uh, Frank Sobchak was, was sharing this. But through the war years became very prominent. They were regularly on deployment and a part of operations. And to the point that in the latter part of the first decade in the 2000s, uh, special forces uh, groups were maintaining kennels, as was normally the case with military police and uh, having a kennel master. And yeah, from that Oxford, from that Oxford study, Chris, you would infer they characterize the types of dogs in their training, and you would infer that soft was the biggest user now just from that particular study, but very heavy use in soft. Yeah, and I, that, I suspect that will go up and down over time. But it, to me, what's interesting about it is you start to get the outline of what it is like. And when you read materials about the training programs, the requirements, et cetera, you begin to see where there are potential pathways for automation. So every dog does have a handler, a handler. 
uh, they have to put in 24 hours of training per week in their assigned area so that they're keeping their perishable skills uh, up to date and enhancing their skills and comfort. Uh, like that quote I read, there's a relationship there that develops and it's very real uh, between handlers and, and dogs. Um, yet they're in dangerous spots. First time, honestly, honestly, the first time I ever paid attention, uh, I was leading a study and was in Iraq, was with a special operations force. And I was looking at video as a team was approaching an objective and you could see the canine team. Um, and you could see activities of the canine team as the raid unfolded, uh, some of the things that were going on, et cetera. And yeah, I just hadn't been so much in my consciousness about how military working dogs contribute in different environments. I'm used to seeing them at the airport. I'm used to them being used to sniff the line. And that to me was yeah, eye opening in that window. And so this article robotic dogs are taking over the military uh, got my attention. And I think uh, in that context, it's a great way to explore with these, call it several thousand dogs. How might that change over time? And what can we learn about autonomous systems and the relationship of AI with autonomous systems by using uh, this program? So, Chris, again, we would encourage people to read the article. There are other things out there on robotic dogs. There there are applications and robotic dogs are real. Uh, so we're not casting shade on robotic dogs. Not at uh, all. Yeah, not we at did all. Cast some shade on the, we did cast some shade on the headline to the article. Um, and as just a general rule, free of charge advice for everyone, uh, these headlines are written to sensationalize outrage or titillate. So we just suggest reading the article uh, at all times. So Chris, let's take this area though of robotic systems, autonomous systems, AI fueled autonomous Huge for systems. the third offset. Huge for Critical. the third offset. And, and just a quick footnote for people. If you're not familiar, if you're a practitioner in this space and you're not familiar with the third offset, you should do yourself a favor and do a little bit of reading there. It is the national emphasis on AI capabilities and national security that defense started before there was a national security commission on AI, et cetera. So third offset is really important to driving the imperative for AI. But if we take this area of AI-fueled autonomous systems, Let's let's sort of generalize to three questions that we think this article helps raise about the broader area of autonomous systems. And those questions would be, do autonomous systems present the opportunity to expand the mission tasks that you can perform over those that you would just perform with humans and today's non-autonomous systems largely? And then secondly, when you look at the limitations of the physical apparatus in the system and the AI enabled, what are the relationships between those limitations between the physical apparatus and, and the AI? And then lastly, let's just bore down on AI itself and, and look at the challenges for AI. So Chris, let, let's take each of those three questions in turn and talk about them. 
So to me, that first one, are there opportunities if we can introduce robotic dogs, autonomous or semi-autonomous robotic dogs, to actually expand the mission range? So I mentioned earlier, if you take the Army, the Army has publications on everything, and being a, formerly a soldier, I tend to go there first to Shocking. look. If you Shocking. look at the working dog program, training circulars and things of that nature, they would enumerate 13 missions in that space. And it's interesting because you have the mission range itself, and then you have the size of the capa of the capability in a force design kind of sense. So today's force design will not have the same number of military working dogs that they did during the height of World War II. And today's force design may not have the same number of working dogs that we had in the heart of Iraq and Afghanistan, right. right? That that can change over time. And the question I think you'd ask uh, appropriately with any autonomous system is not simply to treat it as a substitute. So a real canine does this task. Can I substitute an autonomous system only for that task? So uh, special reaction would be one enumerated on the military side. I think a little bit like SWAT in a in a civilian context. Um, the explosive detection is is one that is is prominent, and drug detection. You know, I think one of the one of the uh, aspects of this as we think about future force design is could you substitute autonomous dogs? for things not just that dogs do today, canines, but that humans do. Right. Uh, does this create some opportunity in certain kinds of patrolling contexts or, or other that could replace humans in the performance of the work, not simply a canine unit in today's environment? Uh, the Air Force runs the military working dog program. They run it out of Blackland uh, Air Force Base in Texas. They run the training. They run the procurement of dogs, et cetera, et cetera. Um, it mainly serves in the Air Force, the security forces, and that's about 10% of Air Force staffing, if you think about it that way, um, on all facilities to include ones that we temporarily instance overseas. The security force has an important role uh, in making sure that we can operate with controlled risk. In the security force, you run a number of working dogs. You know, are there opportunities there to reduce the number of military members and expand the use of robotic dogs, you're back to a core principle that we would advocate in any of this, which is for something that's AI enabled or where AI is central, look really carefully at the mission task. What are the specific mission tasks? Foundation. And I think Yes, exactly. It is, it's a foundational issue, but with an autonomous capability like this, there may be, may be angles where you could actually decrement the use of military members and expand the use of something like a robotic dog. But there is a huge question in my mind as I you just read the materials, you read this article, you read other materials and the longstanding effort around this. If you take aircraft, we have manned aircraft, 
We have remotely piloted aircraft, so I can sit in Nevada and pilot an unmanned aerial system that is flying in Africa. And then we have fully autonomous aircraft that are being developed now. And Lockheed has recently done a, an extended multi-hour autonomous mm. flight with a fighter to include simulated dog fighting activities. Right. Well, that's a continuum. And right now it looks like most, most of the robotic dog applications are semi-autonomous. So you still get a human involved in guiding, et cetera, but there are appear to be some great pathways to autonomous type, fully autonomous type operations. And it's, it seems pretty plainly where industry is driving in research, et cetera. Yeah. And again, Chris, so the, the key questions being, what is the value add of the autonomous system to the mission task? Am I going to reduce the number of humans that are required and therefore have positive effects on my force design? Am I going to lower the cost? Does a robotic dog lower the cost? Does a fully autonomous aircraft fighter lower the cost uh, of putting manned fighters in the sky? Am I reducing the risk of casualties to humans where I'm using uh, robotic systems uh, that I can attrit uh, and less costly, you know, both in moral terms, I'm not shedding blood, uh, I'm reminded, by the way, Chris, um, in 1993, uh, CIA was um, pioneering the the use of a, a, a medium altitude, what today would commonly be called the predator program in the military. And um, I could the agency has allowed me to publish this. Um, we crashed an airplane uh, in test. Uh, and I was standing behind the pilot when the aircraft went in, uh, and, you know, it was a very sickening feeling, um, because we had two aircraft in the test process. And so to prang one of them, uh, amidst the test, uh, was, was 50% not very... of the force. One, <laughs> exactly. Uh, one exactly. <laughs> um, but, um, the, uh, the Israeli engineer who, who had, you know, designed this, uh, made the point later, um, you know, there was no casualty assistance that, that, uh, no, no next of kin that had to be, uh, notified, no casualty assistance. Fair enough. That had to yeah, be deployed. Fair enough. That, yeah. It was just, yeah. just a machine. Okay. So, so that's kind of question number one and it gets to the blocking and tackling issue, but it's an issue that, that just, it can't be stressed enough. It, do I have a firm handle on the mission value here? And while we won't spend any more time on it, Chris, you introduced a very important analytical function within each of the military services in the joint force, and that's force design uh, that people should make themselves smart on in this space. Okay, so how about thinking about the limitations of the physical apparatus versus and the relationship with the the AI uh, limitations. I, I think that one is worth a lot of attention. It's easy to assume that AI is the big deal on everything, and it's yeah. not necessarily. It's not necessarily what is going to drive the potential for an autonomous play. And I think that this robotic dog situation illustrates elements of that. On the upside, I would say this on physical limitations. You currently have a limit, one human, 
dog handler for one dog. A handler and a dog work together as a team. Well, a robotic dog can be responsive to any number of handlers, right? It yeah. creates, it releases us from that limitation. We no longer are uh, governed by that limitation. Uh, we put on in the military working dog program an expectation of hours per week of training in the performance of the task that dog is able to do. It's 24 hours. Well, if I've got a dog that is driven by uh, machine learning and things like that, you know, I start to free myself from some of those, those normal limitations. That's all good and on the upside. But in the article that we mentioned, robot dogs are taking over the military. I found this really interesting. I'm just going to read the quote because it was important from uh, an army senior leader. Quote, these legged platforms have some promises which we've identified primarily from a mobility standpoint. Uh, end quote. And that's from an Army Ground Vehicle Systems Center uh, chief of the dismounted robotic systems, uh, Milo Resli. Uh, and he was talking this past year in the late fall about that. But he proceeds to say this, and I think we can take note of these physical limitations. Quote, there are limitations to them, uh, parentheses, robotic dogs, uh, as well from an endurance perspective, as well as payload and the power of how much they can support. And I think it's important as we think about any range of these autonomous capabilities that can constitute consequential uh, parts of defense innovation and the third offset, there are going to be physical limitations. It's not all AI. Yeah. There will be AI limits, though, uh, and, and AI limits that the teams have to, to grapple with as they field these. Yeah, I mean, it's an electromechanical system, Chris, and it, it reminds me of the episode that we did, just to plug a previous episode, we did an episode on what type of sensing systems could be realistically inferred on the Chinese balloon based on the estimates that have been made about the balloon's payload, et cetera. So, you know, in the case of the dog, the robotic dog, or any autonomous system, you have the physical structure, the scaffolding, if you will. But then as that individual noted, you have payloads and payloads have mass requirements. They take up space. They have power requirements. They need electrical power to run. Um, and so you have these realities of the scaffolding, the payload, the power system, the navigation system, and all of those have to be integrated in an axiom that we coined in the Chinese balloon episode that there's no free lunch. So if, if I want more battery power on the dog, for example, I'm going to have to either have some invention of a smaller battery, or I'm going to up the size of the battery, the mass, the weight, right. which is going to up what some soldier has to carry or, you know, get out and get deployed. Yeah, and these things are not, they're not light. Um, right. Yeah, they're not light. You're talking more than 100 pounds uh, and just thinking about how you move it around the battle space or in an operating environment is is important uh, to, to your point, Frank. Yeah. So, Chris, um, made a distinction there then, and we're not 
we're not doctrinaire in definitions. Uh, so, you know, we're going to use this definition as we segue to the final question. Um, frankly, in some cases, you know, we find the people who are doctrinaire about their definitions to be uh, fairly aggravating. Um, but the sense-making function, taking data, making sense of data, the decision-making function, those are done by AI models in software, in code. It's data, code, and computing are the chromosomal elements of that. And we've made a distinction between that and the robotic activities, the physical apparatus that actually moves and, and does things. Um, so that AI plus robotics or AI plus autonomy. So let's just drill in in the last question on that third element on the AI itself and talk a little bit about what are some of the AI challenges? So I, I think it's useful to recognize clearly where these robotic uh, solutions and where, you know, in the broad range of AI, where it's going to perform well right now is on narrower tasks. So I would take you back to that quote uh, from uh, at that time, a young corporal dog handler in the army, speaking of his canine, we've gotten to the point where I look at her and she knows what she needs to do. I've picked up on her little mannerisms when she's found something or when she's excited. That's a manifestation both on the part of the dog, the military dog there, and that young soldier of general intelligence, right? We have a consciousness that we bring to these activities that's not narrow. I know how to detect this particular thing. Um, it's broad and we learn daily. So he says, and just repeating that quote, we've gotten to the point. Yeah. That's by training 24 hours a week minimum by being right. with that dog all the time. That dog is learning. He is learning. You're in an operational environment. And the reality is with a lot of these uh, air quotes, autonomous systems that are in development today, we're not at the point of tackling general AI and uh, general artificial intelligence, meaning that robotic dog is adapting daily in the operating environment to what is going on. That's, that's not where we are with a lot of things. Your vehicle, your electric, your Tesla to me illustrates that. We've talked about this. You ought to share that. You ought to share just what are the limits on the learning with your vehicle that aspires to full self-driving. So, so let me first qualify how good the models, uh, the AI models and the autonomous system, the integration of the models and, and the vehicle itself, how good that is in my vehicle. So I have a two-year-old Model S that I got uh, during the pandemic to kind of salve my uh, pandemic woes. <laughs> um, I hate to drive. And so the notion of, of, Autonomous driving was uh, very appealing to me. Uh, and the system performs remarkably well. In fact, I'll just, I'll make this contrast. Uh, my wife has a newer vehicle. It's only one year old. 
uh, and I'll just say it's the product of German engineering. Uh, it is it is a high quality luxury vehicle, and it has the assisted driving that you see. There's there's an American company that has a a famous commercial uh, of a truck. Uh, and the husband and wife are going down the road and, you know, he puts the assisted driving on and they start clapping and, and, you know, it's, it's a fine commercial. Um, but I can tell you the, the performance Delta between my Tesla in its autopilot mode, auto steer mode, and my wife's German engineered vehicle is orders of magnitude in terms of lane integrity and, and so forth. It just, there, there is no and just, comparison. just a quick note too, Frank, that's that, that'll be a function of the sensors that are in place on each one of those vehicles. And then the AI models that are processing those sensor inputs and the command and control that it puts on the vehicle. So Correct. It's going to be different between different vehicles, et cetera. That, that's the point you're making. And the Tesla is correct. Performing and well. just, yeah, without digging into it too much, I would say the differentiation for Tesla is in two places. It, they're not a better auto manufacturer than Mercedes and BMW. They're, they're not in terms of the mechanical, you know, command and control elements uh, of vehicles. They're, they're not. But in terms of the AI model development, which they have been working on for many years, uh, and the integration of the AI models with the physical apparatus, they're just superior right now. Just full stop, they're superior. However, and this was the question you raised, Chris, there is an intersection near my home. I have driven through this intersection hundreds of times. Hundreds of uh, times. Hundreds, hundreds of, of times. times. And uh, without fully explaining all the details, the terrain and the road markings of this intersection, and it, it's on a main highway, it's on a four-lane split uh, state route, the terrain and the lane markings are such that, uh, pardon the expression, my vehicle goes batshit every time we get into that intersection. And by that, I mean big red warning light comes on the HUD uh, of a steering wheel. Take control of the vehicle immediately. And, you know, I'm getting audio signals and this big red visual stimulation. Um, and I've been through that intersection hundreds of times. So, so what's happening there? Uh, the first point was superior performance in this autonomous vehicle, uh, a single intersection, really poor performance. Well, how many single intersections are there uh, per individual driver in the United States of America? Yeah, it's Frank, I think you're on it. And I think there's a really important principle here. So these systems have advanced capabilities, but the update is to the fleet of vehicles. Yeah. And in a similar way, I think in a, in a national security context, we can expect that many times our AI and machine learning updates will be to the fleet of capabilities. What you're describing to me is your individual vehicle is not learning despite hundreds and hundreds of repetitions around a thing done routinely, your individual vehicle does not learn. 
That's a crucial difference when we start to think about these robotic dogs and how they fit more dynamically into teams. Uh, another colleague of mine, he directs a portion of the special operations capability in the in the Navy. A, a, a friend of mine, Doug Livermore, he had uh, shared a photograph with me of a, a special operations team entering a building and the dog right with them and, and going through uh, a breach uh, entry entry point. And it's one of the comments that you'll see, even in that robot dogs are taking over the military, the ability of these robots to integrate seamlessly into a team environment is limited. And mm. I think if, if you just bring yourself back to in the near term, as we are incorporating these capabilities, the AI componentry will tend to focus on narrow tasks. Uh, a dog can, has an olfactory capability, a, a sense of smell that people would roughly say is, is 50x greater than a human. It's why they're so effective in that. Can a robotic dog be taught to smell? Air quotes. Uh, yeah, you right. can put a ma mass spectrometry uh, on one of these robotic dogs or chromatography. There are different sensors that can be emplaced on one of these. But you have to ask, how does that relate to uh, a living canine, an adaptive canine that can each day um, make successive improvements on how it interacts with its handler, its awareness of the team and comfort with the team. I mean, watch some of these dogs around their units. Uh, they, they know who's who they know what's up. Um, yeah. yeah, that, that learning capacity is not there in a number of these autonomous systems. And to me, your, your Tesla illustrates what is likely to be a, a continuing challenge with robotic dogs. And it's a broader challenge as we think about AI and where that goes. We're going to see continuing successes on narrow mission tasks in fielding capabilities that can handle those. We'll continue to see emerging capabilities that are on broader mission tasks but we're still a distance and when you compare that to a human now back to the security force example in the air force with 30 call it 38,000 security force members across the active component and the reserve components their utility and orientation they're humans they mm. manifest general intelligence you can give them an instruction you can give them an objective and they're high utility they're people um with general intelligence a robotic dog is not that mm. uh, a robotic dog is going to have some set of narrow tasks where it may perform exquisitely and it may dramatically lower the risk by being able to put them into place, not only to a human, but to a canine uh, and limit the risk to, to dogs. So it fits in the force. It's an exciting area, but it's also to me a great illustration. We can take any autonomous capability and look at it, not simply as a substitute, but a, a, an opportunity to expand. 
we should look at each one of them and where there is a physical apparatus. And that's only one of several ways that we should think about autonomy and that the Defense Science Board has articulated it the way it's articulated in the NSC AI report, et cetera. It's physical apparatus is one way. Uh, and then in that context, isolating the AI challenges, that's important. And some of those capabilities, high-end AI capabilities are going to have implications to power and compute things that you got to carry on whatever the physical device is. But to me, it's a great example. And it's a super article, uh, despite the, the headline issues. Uh, thanks to everybody for tuning in. Uh, again, if you, wherever you get this uh, pod, uh, YouTube, Spotify, Apple, our website, uh, if you would please subscribe or rate and review uh, as applicable, it really helps to get the word out. We are trying to help leaders in AI across the national security enterprise. You can imagine th that's tens of thousands of leaders. So uh, if you would do that, doesn't cost you anything, just takes a few seconds, would really help to get the word out. Uh, if you go to our website, AILeaders.com, uh, we have a free resource there, additional free resource you can download around project execution and the phase of project methods that are out there for AI uh, that is overlooked and can derail your project. We identify that phase and we give you some tips on, on how to successfully execute that phase in your project. So. We have some uh, exciting news coming out from AI leaders at the end of the month, uh, so stay tuned for that. We have some great episodes coming uh, up. Thank you for tuning in to this episode, and until next time, we appreciate you. Indeed.